Hello and welcome to Six Figure Authors, the show that helps you take your writing career to the next level. I'm Lindsay Baroker, and I'm here with my two co-hosts. I'm Andrea Pearson. And I'm Joe Lalo. And we have an excellent guest for you this week, Alex Newton, who is coming to us from Switzerland. And he is the mastermind behind Kalytics, a market intelligence service that monitors close to 100,000 Amazon titles each month to help publishers of fiction and nonfiction spot trends, identify opportunities, engage the competition levels for the various niches and genres of the ebook space. And boy, did I make myself a run-on run sentence there. <laughs> um, Alex, welcome to the show. It's, it's great to have you here. How are you doing? Well, hello, everybody, and thank you so much for the invitation to attend your new podcast. Congratulations on that one. Great to be here. Thank you. Uh, thank you for joining us. Is there anything I missed there in my, my long run-in sentence about, would you like to tell us about yourself or what you do well, exactly? I, I, I loved it. You know, I was just about to, uh, um, to do a Fiverr gig to, to get a jingle for Kalytics, and uh, I know whom to reach out for now. So. <laughs> No, I may have copied some of it from your site, <laughs> from the about section. Yeah, I, I presume most of the listeners will know me and will know Klytics. In a nutshell, K came, comes from Kindle, Lytics from Analytics. We started out analyzing the Kindle market, still do after six years almost. And, uh, you know, we, we try, we, we look at lots of data and crunch lots of numbers so that you don't have to. That's the whole Awesome. And uh, we're recording this in May 2020, in case anybody's listening to the future. So I'm, I feel I should ask, uh, how is life in Switzerland right now with the COVID virus? And, you know, has it affected your business at all? It, well, it, it did affect it, I have to confess, positively, because as you will see in a second, when we look at the data, we did see quite a surge in uh, both ebooks and activity by authors, for that matter. Um, of course, there's people who lost their jobs and, you know, and had other, other, other things to do. But uh, by and large, it, I think, uh, helped uh, some genres greatly. So me personally, it was a good period. We here in Switzerland, it was all managed very well. And today the schools opened back up again. So after two months, things went back a bit. Well, I shouldn't say to nor normal because that's what the government doesn't want to hear. Right. So. Um, we, we're keeping our distance and all that stuff, right? But um, today it seemed, uh, you know, once the kids are at school again, it, it looks good. All right. Well, I hope things keep going well in Switzerland. And we're going to ask you, for those wondering what the show is going to be about, you know, some of the trends and opportunities and like what pricing is working in the Kindle store right now. But I did want to start out asking about COVID-19 in case anybody's wondering, like, is it killing my genre right now? Or maybe there are some genres that are doing better. Um, you've done a couple of trends reports on Kalytics on how COVID is affecting the Kindle store. Have you had any interesting insights or, or anything you want to share with us? Yeah, I mean, I, I can show you briefly some of the highlights. It's it's actually a pretty exciting story because it, it starts out from the print market to the ebook market, then to specific genres within it. I, I can um, I can show you a couple of highlights if you want. Let me just share my screen here because, and I'll, I'll try to talk so it is for a podcast. But for those people who I think later watch on YouTube, some uh, some of the data is a bit more palatable if you also see the exhibit that that goes with it. By the way, before we go into the serious stuff about COVID, right, I did look at your guys' channel and it raised, so I looked at all the thumbnails of your like last, uh, last shows 
And it really rose in me. It triggered this question, does size matter? And, you know, I, I looked at all the thumbnails and said, oh, you know, Brian Cohn was there, Ricardo, Mark Dawson, Joanna Penn, all the big names. But the big names were with a big, big type font. And so immediately I asked myself, what if your name is like Kiefer, Kiefer William Frederick Dempsey George Rufus Sutherland? And then I simulated people on the podcast cannot see the cover there. But it immediately, when you look at the thumbnail, nobody is going to click on your episode. But if I, if I shorten my name just to Alex in your thumbnail, it would, would like really show big time. You know, that's the big guy there you have to listen to. And uh, that's meant as a joke, right? Um, but it immediately triggered in me this, this, uh, this recollection of an analysis we did on book cover design. It, it was specifically for book series that we, we looked at the highest selling book series and particularly the mystery thriller suspense genre, but it, it was more a mission. What does, Am what do Amazon imprints do differently? And uh, for those of you we're only listening. We we have here a couple of Thomas and Mercer covers and Montlake covers. You know, two big Amazon imprints for thrillers and for romance. And it was very interesting to see over the last like one or two years they really stripped down their covers to basically, um, you know, author name in big letters, title in big letters. That's it. You know, no subtitle, no number one bestseller. Blah 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 blah, and. If you look at it just on the small print, it's the same thing like thumbnails on YouTube. You jump into the covers where it's big and legible. And uh, yeah, just as a reminder for those of you who come from the YouTube channel, and then what does that have to do with cover design? I think uh, it's something to explore because when people only look at your book cover, which is nice, great in print, but if they only see it on a black and white Kindle, it's a whole of a different story. And the, the the thumbnails of your YouTube channel just remind me of reminded me of that issue, but it's a different topic. Sorry to dodge the initial question, but I had to bring this up. Yeah, that's right. very great. Uh, we appreciate you showing that. And now that I've seen our YouTube channel, Joe, we may need to be a little more consistent on how we on those place cards. He, Joe's our YouTube guy. Yeah, but, just um, fun. But, great point. But, but but you did ask the question about the uh, about COVID, right? And and for me, it was this one exhibit where we we showed that 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 roller coaster wagon of an Amazon Kindle on a big big roller coaster pursued by COVID nineteen viruses and all of that on the back of the print market, and that sort of epitomizes what, what happened. So, I mean, all of you by now will know that print sales took a dive, and I, I won't go bore you with the bore you with the statistics. But the the really good news was. That when people said, "Hey, what happened to your book sales?" Some people say, "Hey, went up." Others say, "Ah, oh, went down." What we what we did see basically was, okay, print did take a dive, right? I mean, retail consumption in the U.S. dropped by thirty uh, percent last week of March through April was all in the negative. By the way, good news: we're now in the first week of May, and consumer consumer uh, spending in the U.S. compared for that week, first week of May, compared to what it was a year ago, is only minus 4%, coming from minus 30%, like four, week, four weeks back. And these are pretty big negative numbers, but we're going back almost into the normal already on general con consumption. 
Now, for the print book market, we all know it took a dive in March. Print sales, according to NBT, uh, NBT Bookscan, dropped 7%. April, probably going to be worse, although Easter may still help a little bit, tail end of Easter. So what's going to happen? What we did see uh, and observed was this huge, huge surge in interest for ebooks, right? So ebooks interest doubled uh, basically within two weeks on Google. The search interest for any type of ebooks shot through the roof. Now, time moved on. We are now in start of May. So a couple of things. This may have tailed off a little bit uh, already, but. You know, you can go on Google Trends yourself, have a look. But what was really exciting, and this is really fresh from the press, I think this or last week, all the big publishers started to report their first quarter numbers. And I think this was really telling because all of a sudden you have your headlines such as ebook sales at Simon and Schuster, you know, were up 13% this quarter versus the Christmas quarter. And they were 25 to 50% over what it was in 2019. 25 to 50% ebook growth in Simon Schuster. Now, it may come from a smaller base, but still, HarperCollins published their numbers and they, like in a byline, reported 21% growth you know, in ebooks, digital, digital sales compared to the quarter, same quarter in 2019. And also, the, their parent company, News Corp, you know, a big revival of sales. So let, let me just pause here. So I don't know what happened to your guys' sales, but but by and large, we saw this huge surge in ebook demand, directly people coming from print into ebook, and obviously that materialized in different genres differently. And we're gonna uh, look at that, uh, look at it as we as we go along. So um, let me just pause here. Uh, from you, any any reactions or? Uh, what what happened? What happened in your sales? Yeah, I, I think for myself, things have been pretty steady. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say they've exploded necessarily, but it's always hard because it's like depending on the new series. My stuff's more like if I keep putting out books, I get, I sell them. <laughs> but uh, so I haven't seen like a huge growth, but also not a decline, except maybe that first couple of weeks where everybody's just glued to the news. Um, Andrea and Joe, did you want to chime in? I had uh, I. I had a book release, uh, so uh, my earnings are up mostly because of the book release. But the book release is was a little bit smaller than I would have expected based upon prior releases in the same series. But the release fell so pretty darn early in the whole. I should say my promotional push was pretty early in the uh, in the media buzz for this, so it might have been a little hard to get through people's email boxes. But overall, uh, I've seen pretty strong sales for the last month. I was just saying to Lindsay about that before we started. Wow, that, yeah, that's same. crazy. Yeah, my royalties have they've gone up, so that's been good. Now uh, that that's 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 great to hear. I mean, for me, the big question in this context will be obviously how much of this behavioral change of you know people potentially reading more and having come closer to ebooks during this period, how much of that will stick? And the other thing is, for many of the indie indies out there and hybrid publishers, well, so far many of the market niches have not been very much contested by traditional publishers, right? And now during COVID-19 and the crisis, well, they, they now see, oh my God, ebooks are working. We have here, you know, huge growth. So the question is, will they, will they show a revived interest 
in ebooks, which then for the indies obviously means more competition. You know, if they pour in more advertising dollars, whatnot. So I think that's let, let's see how it pans out. You know, but that's at, at least it's a good starting point. It's not like many other industries that took a huge dive. Yeah, it'll be interesting if the, to see if they start bringing their prices down to be a little more competitive in the ebook market. That's kind of been one of our advantages as indies, and I think it can be now too with economic uncertainties. Like, oh, we're selling our books for five bucks instead of fifteen. Our ebooks, so hopefully that will still give us an edge. Right. Although on the pricing side, I, I have uh, good news. We we actually just ran the numbers on the on the pricing. So I just went through the big jars and. This is now monitoring only the top end of the market, like the top 100, you know, the big bestseller list. But they they are indicative of the climate because obviously also up there it's the most most com- uh, most competitive part of the market. And I think the good news here is we haven't seen like a drastic shift, you know, in either direction, you know, like people with huge price dropping or uh, price raises. I mean. Especially if we now learn that the demand has shot through the roof, why would prices with high demand necessarily go down? Now, from a technical individual author perspective, a, a promotion can make sense. But from a whole composite market point of view, it would not be logical if prices had, had dropped. So um, if we just look at the romance prices, this is now the average price for a top 100 romance title measured over the last 18, 18 months in the graph. Uh, you, you may see here in a second as it's loading up. Mm. Here we go. Can you see this one, the Romans one? Yep, Good. got it. So, <laughs> Had myself muted. <laughs> no worries. So Romance, basically what you see here, this is 18 months. So if you look at the last four dots, that's basically the coronavirus crisis time. So. Prices has, have actually gone up in, in romance, and it's basically the continuation of a trend. And we all know romance are the worst prices of all the 30 main genres. So by now, you know, a, a rise from an average of, say, 350 18 months ago to now above $4 is, is, is quite a jump. What else do we have here? Um, let's look at mystery thriller suspense briefly. Here, you know, a bit up and down. It was a bit of a downward trend over the last seven, eight months. But also here during COVID-19 period, prices have been stable, if not up. And last but not least, let's look at sci-fi. Also here, prices trend-wise have been going up. And also after a, a, a steep steep going up in January, then drop out here during the COVID time, it's also gone up in prices. So. For me, as a numbers guy, and I like, uh, and I take my old university economics classes, it sort of makes sense. Demand is going up, price should go up as well. And that's what the data at least reflects a bit here. So good news. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and otherwise, obviously, we, we see an unprecedented growth in KDP. I think many of you, uh, some Facebook groups did report on the, on the $29 million that were issued in royalties in, in the last month. Well, actually for the month of March, uh, I think the, the April numbers should be out any time. But many people reported on that 29 million in the month of March, which was 
in many countries like the the high time of the hysteria around the coronavirus, right? And this 29 million represents the highest ever payout, and it represents the highest ever increase that we've seen in a March over February. So I think good news, right? Um, that that's what's happening there, and I I don't know whether we have the time, but perhaps just verbally, what happened in individual in individual jars. So what we did what we did see here was, um, you know, all the things that have to do with medical stuff. A lot of gains in in uh, in nonfiction genres, and I showed those numbers before. I just show you two examples. I mean, the one, you know, immediate survival is threatened. So what happens? The bestseller list for medical ebooks, internal medicine, infectious disease shoots through the roof again. So for me, that was a bit um, encouraging because it shows the data sort of sometimes makes sense. Um, so th that's what happened there. And conversely, if you look at the big uh, big travel genres, this is what happened. This is what happened here to travel Europe, Italy, Florence books. So the uh, for those who are not seeing the the graph, basically uh, travel books about Florence, Italy always uh, have their peak in in the springtime when people plan their travels to Italy for summer. But this time, it basically you should see the graph. It's just taking a dive. Unsurprisingly, but you see what what I basically want to convey with those is the big movements had actually happened in many nonfiction genres. So we're going to later talk about the big genres that may, basically most of your listeners will be interested in, like romance, like mystery, thriller, suspense, sci-fi, fantasy, you name it. But um, there was a lot of dynamic in the market. So when people ask me what happened, hey, you, you really have to look into individual genres what happened uh, what happened there um so th that was the starting point and what we then looked at and this might be interesting also here for a, a bit of a discussion is we looked into what were the biggest winners and losers if you, if you if you will right so we talked about the the shift towards ebooks and perhaps just two exhibits there you remember in some conferences i showed this picture which in red showed the percentage of ebooks in red in each of the 30 uh, top 100 bestseller lists, cross format bestseller lists on Amazon. So red is ebook, and you see ebooks very dominant already in the year 2017 in genres like romance, mystery, thriller, suspense, sci fi, fantasy. So no, no, no big news there. Then by the end of 2019, that further grew across all genres. So print getting squeezed, and we saw this huge rise in audio. The big question was now what happened during the last month of the coronavirus crisis. And if I now fast forward and look at the picture in mid-April, we basically see that in those genres that have not been very close to ebooks, uh, namely, you know, uh, Many nonfiction books, children's books, etc. We saw a huge shift in format from print to ebook. Unsurprisingly, with bookstores uh, bookstores closed, and the audiobooks were actually sort of neutral, right? So 
interesting, interesting story there. So from a format point of view, the biggest winners from the ebook pipe percentage wise were like health and fitness, travel, surprisingly still a bit of travel, perhaps as an escapism, uh, business and money, technology books, children's books, cookbooks, all the nonfiction stuff with, that traditionally was very much print dominated. But from a more point of view, which of the genres had basically the, the biggest improvement in average sales rank? Um, there is one genre that, that basically stood out. Just fast forward. So first of all, good news is for the romance authors amongst you, whilst we have seen romance a little bit tapering off, because now everybody was buying homeschooling books and that sort of things. Um, romance is still the number one genre, and it has not changed in five years that we followed the market. Mystery thriller suspense is still the number two market. Also, that has not changed in April, has also not changed in May. I, the, the, the new numbers are also just out. But this, and also sci the, the ones that lost two positions, like temporarily, sci-fi and fantasy, and the number one winning genre were uh, the kids' book. So that is probably what happened with everybody uh, in the lockdown, suddenly looking at uh, the kids that want to be kept busy and can do only so much homeschooling uh, per day. That was the big, the big, big winning, winning genre. So those uh, listeners who do middle grade fiction, go out and market that stuff right now if you're not already, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, a lot there is happening. I, I mean, I have even, uh, when you did look like two weeks back into the, I mean, first of all, we mentioned this rise in, this rise in interest for ebooks on Google, which was like uh, doubled within two weeks. The rise of the search ebooks for kids, it rose tenfold in a matter of like two weeks. So, I mean, that's significant. That's, that's, that's really significant. What we then looked at was, I said, well, well how, how temporary a thing is this? And let me have a look here because during that time, if you went into Amazon, and that, that is here from, for example, on the 27th of April, 2020, you had, um, and this is now not ebooks, but you had my first learn to write book, like number two in the store. And I think two, three days before it was like the number one in the store. Look at this, my childhood book, uh, The Very Hungry Caterpillar, is Amazon top 14 store wide. I mean, can you imagine? And that did translate also into ebooks. So even if you then went further down the, the bestseller list, you know. On 1st of May, then, the bestsellers in Kindle, you know, the Bad Seed was number one, you know, uh, you know, number one store wide. So all of a sudden, you see kids' ebooks. And we then looked at device sales. You know, you had all these Kindle devices being, being purchased and rising up in the, in the electronics and gadgets bestseller list. So all of a sudden, the parents, you know, they had to get this additional Kindle Fire device to do the homeschooling, and then you can do only so much ho homeschooling a day, and it materialized into, that's at least my hypothesis directly, into ebooks for the kids. Now, without belaboring the point, what I wanted to point out, though, was 
if we look at kids' books from a longer term perspective, there has always been like seasonality, of course, right? So you wouldn't be surprised if you see what we did see that in April 2020, we see a big rise of the category children's ebooks, holidays, and celebrations slash Easter. So that is happening. But you see, it was also a big rise a year ago. So no big surprise there. But if you do take all children's ebooks, there we saw a very interesting phenomenon. Because when you look at the look at the sales rank of the children's ebook category over the last five years, we always have a Christmas peak and we have a slightly lower Easter peak. And already last year, in January 2019, we had a Christmas peak, but the kids' ebooks did not drop back down again, right? So there were kids' ebooks being pushed by big advertisers. And now in 2020, you know, the peak was even higher and it was also sustainable. Now, why am I telling all this to the fiction authors? I'm telling all this to the fiction authors because we then saw also in some fiction genres that what's happening through the crisis is almost like an amplifier of some trends that were already there. So it was just an accelerator to, to get something that was already on the uptrend even higher. And in some cases, it was, you know, something that was trending down was accelerated. And we had like third cases. And those ones we can look over in, for example, teen young adult dystopian fiction. I, we can discuss a bit later where basically the crisis was the savior of, of love or the whole, whole category. So let, let me pause here and, uh, you know, this is at least what we see across genres, and then we can dive a little bit more into into the specifics of um, of some genres, like you know, teen, teens reading again. But you know, let me just pause here and and see what what happened on your end. Well, I don't have any children's books, so I can't tell from personal experience. But I am encouraged for a lot of the authors, as you know, middle grade. They've really struggled to sell ebooks to that age group, uh, middle grade and low, you know, sort of the, what was that? The, I don't even know, the big seat, <laughs> you know, it looked like it was maybe for a three to five year old. So it, it'll be interesting to see because you would kind of expect that some of this is going to stick. Like once you get used to a new habit, that yeah. maybe you will continue to see more ebook sales to the children's market. That, that's going to be very interesting to see. And, uh, and, I mean, I see, I see it here personally with my kid. I mean, clearly the the time on the electronic device and the time you as a parent tolerate the kid being on the electronic device has certainly gone up uh, during this time, the lockdown. And as you say, once a kid has its time on the device, you know, it's it's very hard to get them off again, right? It's very addictive. So, I mean, at least if they read good books, I think that that'd be a good news. And um and as mentioned earlier, it, it did come as a savior in for a whole genre. I mean, um, if you want, we can, shall we look at the teen young adult example? I think that, that, that is very interesting. Yeah, so, I think we've uh, got a lot of YA authors be yeah. interested in seeing what's going so, on. I mean, I, I mean obviously, I, we, we haven't rerun like the whole, um, whole data set in teen young adult, but I, I just had a look at it. And, and that was an interesting one in terms of when you look at the aggregate aggregate picture, n not so much big news, right? I mean, this is the teen young adult overall 
uh, bestseller list, which is a bit non-telling. You always have lots of Harry Potter in there and, and you know, a couple of star authors who push their books up there. We, we only see here in April, not so much happening, but then, you know, it's gone up in May, but it's not higher than it was in, you know, May, July, June, July of earlier years. So overall, you go like, hmm. And mind you, this is always relative to the other bestseller ranks out there, right? It's not absolute numbers. So if the whole boat rises, um, these people may have seen an increase in sales too, although their relative sales rank has been uh, stable, right? But what we did then look at were, this was an interesting example. We looked at teen young adult romance, science fiction, and dystopia, right? And this is, if we look at the data from the last 18 months, we basically saw it's been declining over the last 18 months. And then starting January, February, um, and especially then with March and April, that category came back up again. At that point, we were not like super excited yet, right? And when they, we said, well, what type of books, um, sorry, what type of books that actually drove that? And there we observed two things. And one was we had the whole, you know, Zan Collins, Divergent, Hunger Games, a, re, a revitalization of those teen young adult dystopian classics, dystopian classics. Um, Kira Kass, I hope I pronounce her right, her, her series titles doing extremely well in that bestseller. So that is the type of books. But then we said, well, let's, let's look at this over a period of four years. And that, that for me was a big eye opener because when you look at the teen young adult sci-fi, sci-fi romance dystopian bestseller list, and of course, there is always books that are miscategorized, but you know it gives you a bit of a feel. Some, you know, the the top trending books, many of them do fit the genre. And it's basically, if I put cut through all the peaks of valley of monthly sales rank performance, we are basically looking at a five year dive. You know, ever since 2015 and the big high time of of Hunger Games and Divergent and all these type of blockbuster movies, also. Now, interest faded away, and that whole category went down, down, and down. And here comes the COVID-19 crisis. All of a sudden, the teens sit at home, have nothing to do, and perhaps there's only so many hours you can play games on your Kindle Fire or your device. For some reason, they started reading again. And my personal hypothesis is what happens there is, and what, I think we saw it also in some other genres. If you look at the individual books that made it up to the bestseller lists, in many cases, it was like, I mean, why is it now Divergent and Hunger Games going back up into the list? And Kira series was like huge, I think. Well, correct me if I'm wrong. One year ago, two years ago, it, it, it almost seems like the people, and this is not just teens, reverted back to, yeah, you name it classics or the type of things you had on your bucket list to read, but never came around doing so. You know, let me finally read that, whatever Tolkien book, you get the idea. So that's at least what what we happen uh, to see here. So for me, it, it, it came a bit down to almost like that in fiction, the, the consumer were, were going to, let's call it, you know, safe, 
safe bets, you know, let's, let's not try something new, but there's this Grisham I always wanted to read or that sort of thing. That's at least my take. I, I, I saw it. I wonder too if the dystopian is getting a boost just because right now people are reading all the, you know, virus and disaster kind of fiction and stuff. Did you see it in the other YA uh, categories? Um, I, I, I would have to weed through the data. Obviously, there are seven thousand genres, and we will look into you know into more detail. Um, I we also looked into adult dystopian and adult post-apocalyptic. And there it's a bit like a, a mixed picture, you know, not so conclusive. Some were going up, some were going down. I mean, the, the most eerie thing I can show you, I don't know whether I brought it. That was, um, you remember we, we did do that, that one uh, dystopian, dystopian report, which was basically end of the year 2000, 2019. And uh, no, I think I haven't brought it with me. But the most eerie thing that happened was, or have I, that happened was that uh, the one bestseller list. Well, actually, I have it here. Let me share this screen. You're gonna, you're gonna be scared if you see this. This is from October 2019, and for those people who are just on the podcast listening. What we see in this graph is basically a, a ranking of post-apocalyptic and dystopian tropes listed by which, basically, which catastrophe earns the highest royalties back in end of 2019. So what were readers longing for and buying? And uh, so you have in there a whole list of, you know, is it the electromagnetic uh, electrical grid blackout, or is it a cold? Is it an attack? Is it the solar storm? Well, there is virus, but guess what? The number one catastrophe that readers bought in 2019 was disease, illness, pandemic, and plague um, as the number one selling probe. This is eerie, isn't it? It's always good times, you know. Those those stories are <laughs> always popular. <laughs> I remember reading uh, Michael Crichton back in. I think yeah. he wrote it in the seventies, sixties, or seventies, Andromeda Strain, and the answer was aspirin, guys. It may be again because there's blood clotting stuff going on with this. We'll see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but uh, yeah, obviously a total coincidence. We don't believe into the collective mind of readers summoning a reality to come <laughs> through. That could be a nice plot in its own right, but. Um, no, just to show you, it was uh, that was a bit a bit weird. So, long story short, I felt that uh, aside from the overall rise in certain genres, no big change in pricing, um, readers going to what they liked before, some particular nonfiction genres benefiting greatly, and for some, you know, sub genres, this this came a bit as a savior. And uh, we also, you know, saw some changes in romance. We can talk about. Um, as, as we go along. So that, that's at least what we saw a bit on, on our end. All right. Well, people are going to have to check out the YouTube channel to uh, see all the graphs. But um, so we're curious to uh, virus stuff aside, you know, because yep. it's kind of a little late, a little late for most writers who are not super fast to take advantage of this right now. What are some trends? Are you still seeing ebook growth overall in like the, you guys do the .com US store? Or have you heard any like, is there more opportunity internationally right now for 
growing, you know, growing markets? I mean, the, the direct data we track on the U.S. side only, but we've started uh, looking into, into U.K., Germany as, as well. Um, but from an absolute number point of view, <coughs> excuse me, you might be able to edit this out. Um, from an overall point of view, similar story like in the U.S., you know, a temporary rise in e-books with a big question how much is going uh, to stick. What we do see, and I think this is interesting for the indies, we as market researchers get more and more requests, hey, Alex, um, can you tell us, do you have data on Germany? Do you have data on the U.K.? Uh, these are at least the, the two. Well, UK is a no-brainer, but the big question, obviously, for many of you guys is sitting in the US or in the UK, shall I translate my books? And there, um, I, my personal feel is, I mean, the next market to look at is, is certainly Germany. Less, well, Spain, not as a country, more as a language, probably. Um, Japan is an interesting one because it is big ebook wise but you know the cultural fit the language is obviously a huge barrier and also format wise you know you often have to ask yourself well does my does my story would that work in a comic and graphic novel manga style so that's also not the direct market to to think of so i i guess we will also explore very specifically for certain genres the question is more like what is the market how does the german uh, mystery thriller suspense market work, and we've done some experiments there, and it's it's interesting to see, you know, the the cliche. If if you translate your work, you will also have to translate your cover potentially, because the cliches in the individual countries are uh, much different. But not always, but in in some cases, like if you want to do a crime novel in Germany, you know, it almost has to have that white background, red font, red picture type of Type of image, so there are very strong cliches who keep, which keep selling, keep selling, keep selling. Question is always like cause and effect. Is it the big, big publishers behind the covers putting all the advertising in it, or is it a cover that is resonating so well with the readers? We will never know, but at least you know the cliches are much different. That's super interesting and something I had not thought of until this moment. That like. I have done some releases in other countries and they mostly have had the same covers. Fortunately, it's fantasy and sci-fi. I feel like there's some consistency there. Yeah. But I had not thought that you basically have to redo all of your uh, your research on what sells well cover and blurb-wise when you do something international. Yeah, yeah. At least we noticed in, I mean, obviously book markets are international also, uh, but we do know the big publishers, you know, they put a lot of thought into the title does not, translate directly into the next language. We see the same in the movies, right? Where the German title has like nothing, zero to do with the English original. So um, that's really something to watch out for. None of the translated editions of the Book of Deacon, my main series, have got the same title for the first book. They've all chosen their own. This is very interesting to me. Yeah. Um, all right. So speaking of this, and again, we probably don't have all of the data on it, but... Um, Translation, like selling your book in another market, that you could sell the English book in a, in a foreign language market that also has English speakers, and then there's actually translating. And do you have any sort of information on what markets you might be able to sell an English language book in that you might not have thought? Because obviously we're all targeting US, Canada, uh, Australia, UK. But like I know that for a while I was selling my English fantasy stuff in Germany very well. So do we have any like data on what foreign language markets have strong English 
Market. Yeah, I mean, coming out from Germany, you know, that's directly in front of my doorstep. So I do look at the book market there, at least occasionally. And uh, we did do one data experiment, actually, for a client where we looked at looked at uh, specifically mystery thrillers, uh, suspense thrillers in Germany. So that's where also the research result came from those cover cliches. But the other finding was that for specific keywords, um, in the thriller genre, um, we did get a lot of, so when we looked at the search results, obviously the top search results were all German books. But as we meandered further down the list, you know, time and again, English, English books were coming up in the, in the result. So answer number one is from a support point of view, it seems that actually quite a lot of people, and and here I frankly don't know to what extent it is a very conscious publisher decision to make that book available in that local market, which I guess you have to do as a publisher, or is there also something of the Amazon algorithm just taking over and presenting .com books in the result, and when you click on it, in, you might be redirected to the .com site, and then order it there. But um, I haven't explored that you may want to do so. But one answer is the in the German market, you do get English search results as well when you look for certain books. But then we dove deeper into the sales ranks of those books. And frankly, they were not selling very well. So long story short, you may get your occasional sale there. But it is it, it is almost like a niche of a niche market because English-speaking readers in Germany are already a niche market. And when you then from that niche take the genre niche and then even niche it, niche it further down to the sub. So long story so, short, English-speaking um, paranormal shifter romance readers in Germany will be very few who read it. So I think it's a bit of a trade-off if you just opportunistically can make that book available and it's not, not big, big maintenance work for you. By all means, do it because it does show up in the search results. It would be interesting if you even advertise those books. I, I don't know. You may want to talk to people like Mark Dawson or you know, who, who may, have, may have tried it. I, I don't know. Um, so I, that could be an interesting result, but I'm, I'm skeptical. You know, especially the German thriller market is so Germanic, you know, with, um, it's going to be, going to be tough in selling. So the fact real. that I'm, the fact that I'm a quarter German, that, that means something, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, and yeah, and by the way, we do have romance authors reaching out and, Hey, do you data on Germany? Because many Indies sit on these assets like portfolio, obviously the, the translation is an investment, um, but homework duly noted. We will look into. I think it would really be worth for the at least your listeners. You know, let, what is the romance market in Germany? What's selling? What isn't selling? What is happening? Like the big genres, we should certainly have a look at at some point in time. That's a great idea. Um, we'll give that to you as homework. And <laughs> just kidding. Uh, okay, so. My question is, how possible is it for authors to set a new trend? Um, what needs to be in place for it to work? And do you have examples of when it's been successful? Well, that is a tough one because 
it's always a question of what is the cause and what is the effect thing. And um, the example I I keep using, you know, is let me sh share the screen on this one here if if you do care to go to YouTube. But um, so just for the listeners, you know, we we looked at some market forces and trends, and here just an arbitrary example. It was romance, right? And we really wanted to understand what is happening in terms of longer term waves for certain things. So here, as an example, we looked at the Google search volume for things like vampire romance, where vampires, as you can see, never die. Um, where you, where one has to understand that the big, big waves in the ebook market don't happen overnight. They also don't happen in the period of three months. Sometimes these things grow over one or two years, are then big one or two years, and then decline over two, three, four, five. That is. That is the cycle you know, we, we keep seeing. So we see like a steady rise, for example, in interest for paranormal romance starting 2006, peaking in 2012, 2013, and then taking a very slow decline all the way up to 2020. And yes, there is then these trends where usually when they're being discussed on, at conferences and in Facebook forums, it's sometimes also when they're already over. And my favorite example is re reverse harem romance, right? Where if you look at the Google interest, now here one has to be careful because much of the Google interest may also come from Korean markets where reverse harem is like a manga comic trope is like a very big thing in Japan and Korea. So here it has to be taken with a grain of salt the numbers. But basically that is happening on the demand side. What we did see and explore was if you then look at the same time period, how many books were, were by authors put into the market for that specific trope? And here's where things become interesting. So if we took that reverse harem type of upward trend in search interest on Google, that was already happening 2014, 2015, 2016, 2017, with only like every month about 20 or 30 books about reverse harm being published. So very, very few authors actually engaged there. Then in 2017, 2018, it was suddenly, you know, the big topic in the Facebook groups. And you see here the, the supply of books shoots up in the air while the search interest on Google already started a slow decline. So you see, it's a, it's a matter of time and timing. It was a high profit niche, new entrants coming in. Now, was that something that was created to answer your question? Probably not. I think that is something where a certain demand was there. But what's then happening, you then suddenly have the same authors, you know, say, okay, reverse harem, you know, some of the big hitters may not do as much anymore. What is the next one? Then you have suddenly in the book supply, Within months, people flooding the market and the advertising with academy romance. Then the next thing may be, you know, prison supernatural things or dragons, well, you, you name it. And here I'd say, can authors create a trend? I think there's like two or three cases. The one is where people get consciously together, like, you know, almost like the Bilderberg group of authors, you know, to say, we 
the next big thing is that type is whatever the and there by the way there was a time you remember like two three years ago when all of a sudden in the amazon top 100 we had all these gray black and white covers with the with the bearded guy you know like mountain romance you know bad boy romance type of thing where it was gray cover and and those that was a romance author, author group at the time who basically collectively decided the topic of the month or the next three months is this, and this is what we push. And if you look at the sales numbers, it seemed to work. Some of these authors also got booted from Amazon because some of the marketing tactics were not legitimate. So yes, it can happen. The big question is always, does it, does it stick? And there I would say, always look a bit into Google Trends and, you know, uh, your search, uh, and, and by the way, if you do keyword research, not only use one tool, you know, like, because on keywords, what is suggested by Amazon, nobody has the search volume unless you're a very big seller for non-book merchandise. There is no official number that Amazon will publish for the search, whatever romance, it's that many per month. It is always extremely crude estimates. That's why when you go through three different tools and even add Google AdWords, the numbers are all over the place. So you have to triangulate a bit and see, you know, is there something really there? And then it's a bit, a bit trial and error. I'm sorry if I'm very long-winded on this one, but it's, a, it's an extremely interesting topic because also in the movie industry, you know, I think last year was the one year with the most superhero movies ever published in one year. But did that make superhero now, you know, the long lasting big trend in, in then literature? No, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a bit trial and error, but I think, and that would be my last word on it. There is something that speaks in favor of authors being able to create trends collectively. And that is the fact that right now, I think, what is it, 37 or 47 of the page on Amazon is sponsored, is paid play, right? So only two-thirds is organic search results. The rest is all paid results. And if obviously authors collectively decide we push that type of fantasy or that type of paranormal, and the readers have it constantly in front of them. It's a bit like a self-fulfilling prophecy because, because then author readers may say, oh, that's hot. At least I try it out. Whether it sticks will have to do with, do these books, res will not have to do with the advertising, but do readers write, uh, read and love those books. That's choosing my 50 cents and a long monologue on an extremely tricky question. Thank you for that one. It does seem that you can only do so much, even if you have like some best-selling authors banding together, there has to also be like the hunger, you know, like we saw earlier this year, I don't know if you were watching it at all, but there is a group of uh, female authors that did like paranormal women's fiction and just really dominated in like February and March. And it was all heroines in their forties, which are like absent in urban fantasy and paranormal romance. And it's like, they probably, it wasn't just that they decided this is going to be popular, but it was like, hey, there's this missing gap in the in the market. And uh, these are the people reading the books, probably, is that age group. So I could totally see afterwards, like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense that that would take off. Yeah, yeah. 
do you have, have you been poking around and seen any new, I know every now and then Amazon opens new subgenres. Like uh, I remember you talking about medical romance last year in one of your reports. Have you seen any new stuff popping up that maybe people could take advantage of if they write quickly? <laughs> I wish we, we looked at the browse tree and um, no big surprises there. Not, not in the big genre. Uh, there was, as you mentioned, editions, I think was February, 2019, quite a number of basically back then. And that sustained a bit in, into now, into now we, what we did see is a lot of editions in the teen young adult categories that started reflecting their counterpart in uh, their counterpart in the adult cat categories. So for example, um, you had now clean and wholesome romance for years in the overall romance category. And then they only, I think, what is it, a year back by now already, they started introducing clean and wholesome romance in the teen young adult section of the store as well. And that happened to probably a list of like 20 or so uh, categories, if not more. And um, which in itself I found interesting. Why would Amazon, you know, decide to provide that further granularity for the readers, for the consumers and teen young adults, which goes back to now we all of a sudden during the crisis, the teen young adults reading, but perhaps Amazon saw stuff in their data already way before. Or they said, okay, there's merit in, in uh, extending the categories in, in adult. But um, unfortunately, I don't have like, hey, this new category this month, like in our last talk, talk that you can immediately exploit and put your, uh, put your novel into, unfortunately. Well, you know, it, it usually, it feels like the only way to catch a trend and like actually profit from the trend is, is to be, get, have something fresh and catered to the market as it's rising. Are you able to determine if newer books outperform established books in a, a genre as it starts to go up? Like, if you happen to have a book that, that's been out for two years in a genre that's starting to explode, is it going to get squashed by the, the new releases in that genre? Also, very tough question. And uh, for this one, I, I had to go, uh, go back into, into the data vault. So before we go into the data, we all know that the Amazon search algorithm. So if you type in something and then you're presented with search results, so that's not SLS, that's search, the search algorithm, that you're presented with a whole collection of books. And we know that one big criteria is conversion of those books. So Amazon will present to you what is selling. We also know that sometimes they present to you new stuff. And um, the big question is exactly as you say, well, is it, is it only the new stuff outperforming the old stuff? So we actually went once through all whatever, you know, a couple of thousand bestseller lists and looked through all these top 100 or top 20 was actually mostly the top 100, each of the big bestseller lists, which looked at the publication dates, which, which in essence is you have the search result on the one end of the equation, but that what sells will ultimately end up ranking high in the respective bestseller lists, right? So we tackled the issue from what's ending up in the bestseller lists. And I, I um, let me look at the data here. I, I gave this the name. Well, is it fresh or vintage stuff that you that you that you get in the store? And this may differ by individual genre, but the the, the big picture is that 
we can talk about every bestseller list and, and say, well, what is the share of books that in that bestseller list are less than a month old or between one month and 12 months old or say more than a year? You can do it more granular, but I think the big, big, big question is, you know, how much is like really new releases? How much is pretty, how, how many books are like pretty fresh books, fresh merchandise up to a year old? And what is all the backlist of stuff that is older than a year? And we saw there that the split of share of books is almost half and half between old books and new books. But the very new book, like less than a month, made almost a quarter of the bestseller list. Then one to 12 months, like the next 20, 21% of the books. And then, well, 55% of the books in the bestseller list are older than a year. So does it only have to be new stuff? No. You, you do see actually quite a number of bestseller lists, especially in nonfiction, that are extremely what I call sticky, the individual books in it. When a, you can also very roughly estimate the royalties and, and there, basically the books that are less than a month represent a quarter of the books, but 40% of the royalties. So you can argue that the very fresh books, less than a month, they must see some, uh, the algorithms must favor them some way, or ultimately the consumer, you know, the conversion of the book. Do you tend to click on new stuff or old stuff? Very often people click on the new stuff, right? Uh, if they care to look at the publication date. So also here, long story short, there is clearly some, um, yeah, some trending towards the new stuff clearly makes it all the way up there. There are some sticky books. And I mean, to me, if you tell me that 55% of the bestseller lists are books older than a year and they still command like 40% of the money being earned there, that to me says there is an opportunity in, in basically marketing your backlist and making many, making money off the old crop. That's encouraging to me because it's basically my business model is um, advertising books that have been up for a year, year and a half, two years, three years. And that's where I make the bulk of my money is on my backlist, even above and beyond um, um, book promotions. I mean, not book promotions, you know, new releases and things like that. And so it just gives me more time to get a book ready, you know, more reviews, more books in the series and to get it more attractive. And it's kind of nice knowing that it does it, you know, it does work. Well, I know it works because it works, but <laughs> for me, but yeah. yeah. And, and I think the, um, what is very related to that, to that question, by the way, is the, is the, is the question about series, right? Because you, you don't have to look at new and old just as two separate things, but obviously your new, new books in a series will help promote, promote the older ones. And, what we did observe, I mean, if you ask me what were like two major mega trends over the last three years, then I'd say, well, the one is a continuous rise of the share of Kindle Unlimited books in, the, in any top 100, you know, whatever the category is um, across, across the board. And the other thing is that with that, the share of books that form part of a series have also risen in the market share. They, they command. So combining the two data points, I'd say 
there are still obviously lots of debate and it's very individual decision making on whether you go exclusive and go KDP select as wide. That's a different story. But uh, especially in the genres of romance and sci-fi fantasy and in some subgenres of mystery thrillers suspense, we have a good set of serialized fiction. I mean, each book obviously being a good standalone book, but a mutually reinforcing series that creates a brand is completely tailored to that analysis we just discussed because you tap into both sides of the market that obviously do exist. And it's good that they exist. I mean, imagine there was like only new stuff in the bestseller list and, and no, you know, like proven you know, classic. That, that would be sad. Yeah, agreed. Um, okay, so we've kind of talked around this a bit, you know, the romance, the clean and wholesome, all of that. But um, how are those categories doing right now? The clean and wholesome, clean and wholesome romance and, um, and ro the romance market in general. And is there anything authors should be aware of? Well, I, we just happened to do our new clean and wholesome romance report. That's completely now coincidence because now is the publishing time for clean and wholesome. But uh, in doing that, I, I found one interesting thing going on because you can always debate what is the category clean and wholesome, right? And, uh, you know, what is clean, what is sweet, what is whatever, right? I always keep answering these questions. Well, the genre is whatever the genre is, what the readers buy when they type in these terms, right? So when people type in clean and wholesome romance books, they're presented with search results. And over time, it's almost like the readers define what the genre in question, what the genre in question is. Very tough market forces at work in the book market with the online book market, right? It's, it's no longer the, the person in the bookshop giving that recommendation. So, oh, you want to read clean and wholesome romans? This is like the authority book. Like this is the one. No, 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 no. It is a very reader-driven, reader-driven thing. So the one thing we did observe. For example, in the Romans, and this may have to do a little bit with, with you know, COVID-19, the crisis and escapism. Last year, we still saw a lot of covers with um, basically couples, very often couples, or the handsome dude, like clean and wholesome uh, billionaire romance, right? Clean and wholesome cowboy romance, the, the, the one handsome dude, not the bare-chested guy that is not clean and wholesome, but the handsome dude on the cover. And I think this year we saw less of that. And we also saw less of the even couples on the cover. But we saw much more of uh, books that if, if, if you had academic discussions probably about them, you would say, well, is this already like family saga or is it holiday fiction or is it women's fiction in general, right? Where you have all of a sudden, you know, the, the you name it in you know the the picture of the beach and the the, the beach house and and uh, if you look at the blurb, there's fairly little romance in it, but it seems the reader clearly buy this as a as a clean wholesome romance read where they have an interesting story, you know, uh, a good romance plot or even sometimes only a side plot where you can start debating is this still romance? But this is what we what we saw. Uh, you know, this is at least my preliminary take take on the data. So I don't know, with people staying at home, the romance readers, 
no longer allowed to travel, you know, oh, now I have here this nice love story on a, on a nice beach house. That sort of resonates more with the whatever vampire slaying, you name it, you know, uh, type of paranormal romance. I mean, relatively speaking, all these other romance markets are still huge, right? Don't, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm just happy to uh, be into this one right now. So, uh, we will look into a new new romance report mid-year, and then it will be very interesting because we see across all the genres what happened during the COVID-19 time and what was. And, and ho I hope, by the way, that by that time we can look back at COVID-19 and not be in yet another crisis mode, uh, whatever. But oh, let's keep fingers crossed that we can look back on what happened in the market rather than happening right now. We shall see. We do not attempt to make health predictions on this show. So <laughs> uh, I thought it was interesting with your chart with the fresh and the vintage books. The percentages are actually quite equal to uh, like my income will be like maybe 50% from the backlist and then 50% from the All right. last 12 months. So it would be interesting to see if that pops up for other people too. If there's a lot of correlation between you had royalties and also just number of books sold in there, I think. Yeah. And, and, and by the way, perhaps one, one other point is whatever Amazon does, um, when we look at certain bestseller lists, like year after year, after a year, you can also get a certain percentage for certain genres. So if, if you ask how many of the books that are, say, in the main paranormal romance category, number one this year, how many of those 100 books at a point on time will still be in the top 100 exactly 12 months later. And that percentage is very low, right? It's like four or five of those 100 books will still be there. And sci-fi is probably a little bit higher because you have more quote-unquote classics there. I mean, overall, there's, can you only live on the backlist? No, because the, what, what goes up must come down. So I remember, I think it was in, in, in Vegas when we looked at that data, when we looked at over the last years, we always looked at what book was at any point in time a number one bestseller in the respective category, and where no actually store wide, store wide number one Amazon, and where is the book after one month, after six months, after twelve months? So I think if I recollect, it was the number one book after. After one month, and that is like on average, it was down to sales rank 17,000 on average across all categories. Um, then I think after six months, it was down to 39,000. And after 36 months, so after three years, it was like still wide 100,000 or worse. So you see, there seems to be a, a natural shelf life to a title. Almost a bit like in the fashion industry, and only few books make it into this classic status where you then have whatever hand, *Handmaid's Tale* um, in the bestseller list, you know, in the top ten, like time and again, or the *Toby's Seven Habits*. And there are a couple of books out there who are like always in the top hundred. There's very few of those, unfortunately. Or fortunately, depends on the perspective. 
Yeah, and I, I would say also that it's it's definitely my front list sales that are in a way like people read the new series and then they go back and check out the other series because I do minimal advertising on the backlist stuff because it's less effective. It's just easier to get that new release boost and advertise that stuff. But I know if I stopped publishing new books, I wouldn't necessarily maintain that same income with the backlist stuff. Right, right, right. Yeah, I agree. So we just, I think we each have one more question for you. These are the uh, greedy, we're the hosts, so we get to ask what we care about questions. <laughs> I hope so, you, yeah, I'll keep going. Can we, whatever <laughs> I can answer, I'll try to. All right. Well, I'm going to ask as a sci-fi and fantasy author, do you see any new trends emerging or hot new subcategories in the sci-fi and fantasy genres? Um, not yet. Except for one where it just stumbled over the numbers. And I don't know whether that is a coincidence or a prize or attributable to COVID-19. I mean, we obviously saw a lot of that conspiracy theory stuff happening in, in the media overall, right? So lots of uncertainty happening there. And, it, and I think during this time, we saw almost like whole society going into like two, three directions, you know, one part of the society, you know, leave me alone. I, I don't want to know about that stuff anymore. I know it's serious, but I don't know what to think. And you have this conspiracy theorist stuff or the, say, more the science geared audience who discuss all the numbers and what is the virus. And you have those people who seek shelter in, you know, faith based solutions, right? You know, oh my God, I turn to God. And so, one genre, by the way, in sci-fi, which for the long time did not do so well, which was like Christian fantasy. All of a sudden, you know, the whole genre gets a, a pretty significant lift back, back up again. And if you think about it and say, yeah, sort of logical. Similarly, in mystery, thriller, suspense, I know I'm leaving sci-fi, but also there, all of a sudden, something that over the last two, three years, what not was not like was. It's an evergreen genre, but it's not like that it was sky high tech, techno thrillers, technology thrillers. All of a sudden, you know, go, go back, go back up again. So, um, for more detailed, what are the rising sci-fi genres? You know, give me a call in the, I, I simply don't know all the numbers by heart. We would literally have to look into the database and see first explore which of the categories and then, you know, do the due diligence as we always do what type of books are really driving that movement in the category because, you know, sometimes, uh, that's my favorite example, wh whichever way you go, sometimes the categories show you stuff that have nothing, nothing to do with the category where all of a sudden you see a big rise in mystery, thriller, suspense, organized crime. And then when you look into it, it was not mystery, thriller, suspense, organized crime, but it was all the gang romance, street literature, romance authors putting their books into it. So. Uh, a couple of way paths lead to Rome in the end. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I sort of my question would be sort of the opposite, where uh, obviously up and coming trends are useful to know if you're planning a new series. But that, how much data do you have on like subgenres that are starting to sag? Are there any former cash cows that it might not be a good idea to start a new ten book series in? You know, actually, you know, let, let us look at the numbers. You know, right now. So basically, we can sort all the categories by what growth have they shown over the last 12 months. So it's, it's always interesting to, to look at the extremes, you know, but it's, it's sometimes very hard because 
yes, these do exist. So, for example, the the biggest sagging jar, and don't ask me why that is, but out of like, let, let's just do subcategory level, which is like 422. Otherwise, we get into like knitting categories and that sort of stuff, right? Which is not uh, not so interesting. But if I look at the data of what were the uh, the biggest declines in relative sales rank of the 400. 22 subcategories that do exist. Um, the ones that showed the biggest decline, although still selling on a high level, were uh, women biographies and memoirs. Um, well, that is not a surprise. I look here at Middle East travel, sort of understandable, although it's a 12 month trend, right? So, um, fantasy romance, interesting, going down, just lots of travel genres. I think that's does not come as a surprise. So um, which one shall we look at? Sci-fi or fantasy or you tell fantasy. me? Fantasy. Fantasy. Let me just type. Sorry, fantasy. Joe. <laughs> Andrew doesn't care about sci-fi. <laughs> okay. No, okay. Sorry. Uh, yeah, it may not be that telling. You know, I, I probably, because we have here only the subcategory level and that is only, only few in fantasy. Let me just well, what I'm basically doing, let's just expand the search from like 400, uh, 418 subcategories, like 7,000 uh, categories overall, right? And then the, the next level down, we would have to look at, um, I think, especially in sci-fi and fantasy, we're, we're talking about a lot of very low-level low level categories. So let me just refresh here, and I hope this works here on the fly. Ta-da. Yes, it does. So um, you were saying fantasy. So let's look what do we have here with uh, fantasy. All right. So sagging genres. Interesting. By, but by the way, Joe, I think the question is always, what, what is the interpretation? You know, if something has declined over 12 months, do I then say, hmm, I look at these waves in the book market. Do I, is this now a time to enter or is it a bad idea to put in? I cannot judge that. Um, that particular that particular des- decision, right? But um, well, big declines, teen, young, adult, sci-fi, and fantasy, mysteries, fantasies. These are you have to look at what books are in those categories, you know. But I presume some of these will be uh, mystery, fantasy, could be a bit of urban in it, maybe not. You have to check it. Mm. Fantasy romance overall, I think that comes as a surprise. Although in absolute terms, and you always have to take the trend. An absolute term. In absolute terms, it's still one of the highest ranking romance, uh, romance, romance category, right? So, um, fantasy, you see, I have a lot of your family. Interesting. Fantasy classics have been on decline. Isn't that interesting? Sword and sorcery fantasy has been on the decline. Then here, also very interesting. While we saw the dystopian teen young adult one, you remember at the beginning of the podcast, we said, here, actually, COVID-19 came a bit as a savior as these teens at home started reading again. The overall sci-fi fantasy dystopian uh, category has actually lost quite a bit, like 40% decline over over 12 months period. I, th- I think we could go on and on. So um, it's very hard to like you know pinpoint. You really then have to say, okay, let's zoom in just on a certain subgenre in sci-fi or romance. And then the next step is what books is it? And then do your due diligence. Is it actually good news or bad news? So is it perhaps timing to 
re-enter that market in the anticipation of that thing to go up again. Good information. And um, it's funny because the series I'm currently writing is fantasy romance and I've got two more books to finish it. <laughs> but I, well, I'm... but perhaps it's a good timing thing. As, as said, you know, you always have to look at um, it's still a super big market. So if you have a strong name, you know, a strong asset, strong brand, strong author name, big advertising m money, I wouldn't get uh, it's always look at the trend data, look at the absolute numbers of the of the ranks. And um, and that's important. And obviously, the level of competition now, romance fantasy, obviously super competitive, big mainstream. But if you're strong in there, my God, don't shy back. You know, I think the courageous are re rewarded very often. Yeah, and I was gonna say, and I, it also depends. I mean, some writers they just they want to write that story, and and they're gonna write it even if you say that genre is sagging. You know, but it's still good yeah. to know. You know, yeah, it, it, it's good to know. At least you know what you're running into. But mind you, sometimes it can also be an advantage. Perhaps the advertising cost gets lower, you know, oh, yeah. as, as uh, some something goes down. And and now for me, as a complete non-writer, I'm a data geek, right? I'm a business person. I'm a I'm also a bit of an artist, but I'm I'm not an author. <laughs> and that's mm -hmm. sometimes that's a big advantage because I can have a certain distance, mm -hmm. you know, to those numbers and. If I had to say, like, one thing now, having looked at this, like, whole mark, right to market uh, discussion over the last five years, I always say, look, you start out, you, you have to write something that you love, right? Because if, if you don't, yeah, I can tell you whatever, Amish romance is great, but if you don't love Amish romance for 15 years, it will be tough to write, right? Second thing is, that certain genres come with a certain, I, I'd say almost like knowledge requirement or skill requirement. I can tell you legal thrillers is great, but if you don't know legal proceedings, it will be a pretty tough for, for someone uh, to, to write. So you have to certain knowledge of the genre. Uh, basically, that's a big word, knowledge, that, that brings you into position to write with authenticity. So, you know, one of my clients thinks she is very big in in Navy SEAL romance. Well, her son, she didn't serve in the Navy, right? But, you know, her son is a Navy SEAL, so I, I hope he doesn't disclose confidential information or classified information, but you, you get the idea. There is some knowledge there or the big, uh, yeah, look at some of the Facebook groups with a big, you know, you name them the big mil military sci-fi guys. Many of those have a military history. So there comes the knowledge and authenticity out of it. Then there's a certain skill part involved in it, a certain craft skill. Some genres require a specific way to be able to write sex scenes or a specific dialogue. That for me is like the, the, the passion, the knowledge, and the skill factor. When those three are together, I think then the next step is, well, let's look at the markets that match those three. And I think when those three come together, then the magic starts to happen. Those people who only say, hey, Alex, what's the highest trending genre, at least competitive, you know, let me hire the ghostwriter and do it. I'd say that's not a business model. That, first of all, that uh, I don't believe it works in the first place, big time, and I think it's not sustainable. Yeah, good points. And writing's too much fun to hire somebody else to do it for you anyway. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so um, my next question, how often do fads from one age swap into another? So 
Oh, like, say, for, say that again, please. Um, how often do fads swatch, swap from one age to another? Like unicorns, I, what I mentioned, my, my daughter's obsessed with unicorns and that's really popular and there aren't unicorn books for adults. And so, um, and you guys were like, Andal, Andrea loves unicorns. I'm like, I don't really care, but I, you know, I like mythical creatures. And so I'm like, are unicorns going to be a big thing? And I mean, do things from one age ever become popular in another? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, probably the hypothesis that it works per se rests on the big, um, uh, all the young kids have seen the Harry Potter movies, right? And then they grow up and then all of a sudden we see the steamy romance plots in the, you know, which academy and this academy and that academy and you, you name it. Perhaps, I don't know, Prison Break was a big thing, you know, some some years ago, and then you see prison romance books and, and this and that. So I think that would support the hypothesis that it works. On unicorns, I mean, I did look at some of the books and the sales ranks, and they are not doing particularly well yet. And I don't have the data, but I just have a hunch, because I, I think some of these tropes or main character type of things, you know, is it the shifter, the werewolf, the unicorn, the thing? Um, often this has, this has to do with what do the symbols also stand for, right? And I think, especially in the case of unicorn, if you look at the 70s and 80s, I think the unicorn as a symbol developed into also a big symbol of the, I think at first the gay movement and LGBT movement, right? So. It is a symbol that is extremely strongly already related to, in this case, a certain, uh, a certain sexual preference, you know, type type of group. So, um, and I'm not judging whether that is good or bad. I'm just saying there are certain influences. You, you have to almost look in. Are there certain blockbuster movies out there that would support Unicorn? Not just three children's books that kids love. Are there any contrary symbols or connotations that go together with that that may be beneficial or not beneficial to the push of the genre? So my hypothesis, and you can, we can discuss this in a year, unicorn, I'd be doubtful. You have to wait 20 years until all those kids that are enjoying their unicorns now are adults and want to buy your books. That's and my thought. You, <laughs> If you're if you're in it, I'll be there in twenty years, and we run that analysis. That sounds good. Um, thank you so much, Alex. We kept you over an hour. We were going to try to keep it to an hour, but we don't seem to be able to do that here. Um, can you tell us at Klytics? We mentioned that you know you gather the data and you do these reports. Do you want to let people know like the different like you have the reports people can buy just one off, and then you've got a subscription in case people are interested. Go ahead and share <laughs> uh okay so now i can we, we're already like one and a half hours i think into the podcast so i think the last thing i should do now is do a big sales pitch to the audience but i i do appreciate the offer and of course we we also do our service for money so people can sign up with subscriptions getting access to a database of monthly updated seven thousand plus genres access to many genre reports. Some people opt more for uh, buying individual reports. We obviously um, uh, do advertise and, and price-wise also, you know, lo love being people doing 
memberships. It supports us and, you know, it supports basically also the research for the whole indie community. So if you want to check it out, you know, do come to uh, klytics.com. It's k-lytics.com. And also very importantly, if you have any questions about it, if you do write to support at klytics.com, that's support at k-lytics.com. If you just say attention, Alex, or uh, podcast XYZ, um, it's, I'm going to read it personally and um, can get back to you with what, if I can answer. All right, excellent. And uh, thank you for the sci-fi romance report. I'm, uh, I'm not writing them now, but if I go back to it with my pen name, it'll be nice to see, like, because I haven't been paid attention for a few years. So, right. Uh, I get to yeah, see that, what's that going on. That's a bit of a renaissance, huh? So. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Well, we appreciate you having you on today and staying up late in Switzerland. Uh, thank you so much, uh, everyone. Uh, thanks for you. Thank you for listening and to Joshua Pearson for producing the show. You can find the show notes or leave a comment or question at sixfigureauthors.com with the number six. And make sure to check out Kalytics. That's it. <laughs> I'm done. Bye, everyone. So long, everybody.